Hey everyone, I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly and this is A Media Operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, products, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. To learn more and to become a premium member of the newsletter, visit amediaoperator.com. My guest this week is Dave Nimitz, the GM of Culture and Innovation at Bustle Digital Group and the former co-founder of Bleacher Report. During this one-hour conversation, we discussed both of the media companies he founded, the newsletter reward program that has contributed to an improvement in open rates, and what liquidity looks like in media today. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I don't want to spend too much time talking about Bleacher Report since it has been so many years, but it's also where it all starts. Can you talk about the genesis of that company, what your specific focus was while you were there? Sure. It has been so many years uh, and yet yet still seems like yesterday in some in some ways uh, as those things go. Uh, but it has it's, it's been it's been eight years since the company sold, uh, which is a good amount of time. Uh, and how long since we started it? I'm trying to trying to think uh, roughly 14, I guess. Uh, so I'll try to, I'll try to dig back. It, I started it when, when I just graduated from college, uh, and it started as very simply a, a project, uh, amongst a, a group of, of my friends and me. And we kind of started with the rough idea of, of we were going to start a sports blog, uh, and that we were going to be the writers and that we were going to, going to write, uh, about, the teams that we followed and it was going to be this very organic thing. Uh, and then that kind of snowballed uh, into being, being something much, much bigger and kind of more ambitious. Uh, initially it was, it was user generated content where we, we decided we were going to create this platform where, where anyone could write about sports and where it wasn't just us and our friends, uh, but it was anyone out there who had a passion for sports could come and contribute and we built all, all sorts of moderation systems and collaborative tools to try to, uh, try to build a community around it and, and build a system around it. Uh, and then as we got into that, it, it shifted to becoming, uh, much more of a traditional publication where we hired editors and writers and, uh, and gradually, uh, removed the user generated, uh, part of the model and focused solely on professional content. So that's a very long-winded uh, explanation of, of the evolution. My, my role in all of it was wearing all sorts of different hats. Uh, and, and I'd say initially, I, 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 I really pushed that, that vision of taking it beyond a sports blog amongst friends uh, and, and thinking about it as as a platform and thinking about uh, the community side and, and really kind of saw the, the opportunity to build something larger and more comprehensive uh, and, and then focused a lot on, on the execution of that. And I, I wrote a, a blog post about this a, a couple months ago. We tried all sorts of crazy things to build our initial community and to get uh, our, our initial 
a thousand or so writers on the platform and, and community members on the platform. And I I was doing a lot of those things from posting on Craigslist forums to testing out Facebook's first uh, ad platform and, and and all sorts of stuff like that. And and really just trying, trying a lot of things to get people on board. Uh, And that was in the early days. And then uh, as the company grew, I shifted into more of a business role and, and did a lot of our, our bigger partnerships that, that uh, led to, to growth for the company. So partnering with the big sports players like CBS sports and Fox sports and, and putting a, a big deal with, with YouTube that we had together. Uh, and then we ended up building out this big uh, uh, local media network with, with partners like Tribune and, um, Philadelphia Inquirer and Hearst newspapers and a bunch of local media companies. So anyway, all sorts of stuff. Happy to talk about any of it. Well, so I want to dig into a couple of the blog posts that you've written about because you know you've you've dug into the early days of of Bleacher Report and and and, and how you grew the business. And one of them is the biggest driver, or likely the biggest driver, of traffic and audience uh, for your publication was Google right? Or search engines overall. Uh, and, you know, my background obviously is in SEO. So I think a lot about this, but for many of the other large media companies that launched at a different or at the same time as you guys didn't really think too much about search. It was all about social. Why do you think search quickly became less interesting to publishers compared to social? And why did you focus so much on search? So, so actually, uh, for our era, search was the, the dominant uh, distribution channel. Social didn't really come about until a little bit later. So, so we launched the very first version of the Bleacher Report site in 2006. Uh, and then we kind of re- we ended up rebuilding everything. And that was a, a very small version of what it ended up being. We rebuilt everything and launched the the real thing in 2007 so that back in that era Facebook I mean, when we first launched it Facebook was still only open to people in college uh, and Twitter I don't think even really existed yet I, I, I kind of, I actually remember when sitting in the first bleacher report office when Twitter launched or when Twitter first kind of started getting buzz and reading about it so social didn't really become a big driver until a few years later. And when we were getting started, the big players out there or the, the people kind of building around that time or you know, Huffington post was, was the big uh, up and coming digital media site that we were kind of closely following behind. And uh, yeah, I know you've had, had Jared on, on the pod and, and maybe some other people. And so I mean, they were all SEO. And so we, we learned a lot from them and a lot of things we just figured out by accident because we realized that Google was kind of the only way we could, we could get access to new audience as a completely unknown site. Uh, and it really wasn't until 2011, I want to say, that we really started to focus on social and that social really started to show show promise. And, and I remember uh, BuzzFeed 
coming on the scene. We were one of the very early partners of BuzzFeed when they were, all they did was kind of aggregate stuff from around the web and, and show what was trending elsewhere. Uh, and we, we started to spend some time there, but it really didn't start to take off until kind of around the time Bleacher Report sold in 2012. Uh, and Bleacher definitely shifted once social really started to take off to a social first mentality uh, and kind of left a lot of the SEO stuff behind. And obviously now everyone has, or not everyone, but most people have, have really started to come back to SEO uh, given all the ups and downs of social. I was working at a B2B industrial directory in 2011. So social really was not a thing I thought about. Search was. Why did publishers make that aggressive shift from more dependable traffic from Google to, you know, Facebook and Twitter and, and those platforms? So for at least in my experience, most of it was it was Facebook and it was this perception that this was a paradigm shift in how people were consuming content, you know, getting news, getting entertainment information. And as we saw, Facebook was just sending boatloads of traffic to people just at ridiculous levels that you could very, very rarely achieve through Google and Google. Yeah, I've used this analogy. I've heard other people as well. Google's more like a dependable. It's it's like a investing in a value stock, a dividend stock, or even more like a, a, a investing in in fixed income. Although that may be not not the best example anymore. But it's a, it's a, it's a dependable long term investment. You you plant the seeds. You you follow the right best practices, and over time you build an annuity of, of audience that's very dependable, like you said. And Facebook was like playing the, it, it was like Wall Street bets. It was like playing, playing these hot growth stocks and you'd saw that, you know, you could post something and it could take off and get you millions of people overnight and that could disappear just as quickly. But it, it kind of created this promise of you could reach audience in ways that you never had before. And I think a lot of publishers mistakenly believe through that through their Facebook pages and through their social voice that they were they were building real relationships with their audience there, uh, as opposed to just drafting off the the engagement that these platforms had. Uh, so it, it was a little bit of over exuberance uh, of this this new platform and, and the promise of the new traffic and thinking that it was only going to continue and only going to grow. Uh, and I think it, it another thing that that uh, that was happening at the time is Google was making a lot of changes. So Google wasn't quite as dependable. I think Google has become more dependable in the last couple of years, even though they continue to make algorithm updates at a very regular pace. At the time, Google had been kind of ripe for a lot of abuse. And if we remember the whole content farming uh, uh, trend of you had the demand medias of the world and a bunch of copycats who were just pumping a lot of low quality content into Google and for a while doing quite well. And then you had 
the panda and penguin updates that really started to change a lot of kind of the underlying uh, mechanics uh, of how Google worked. And so that was happening. And then at the same time, Facebook was just throwing unbelievable amounts of traffic at publishers. And so it kind of created this shift over to social that obviously didn't end up working out so great uh, for most of the publishers, but for a couple of years, it was, uh, it was quite good. I feel like there's going to be a trend in this, in this episode where I'm going to say you wrote a blog post about, and then jump into the question. Uh, Cause my next question is, you know, you wrote a blog post about the first email capture pop-up on Bleacher Report and how your co-founder Brian secretly worked with the development team to kind of put that up there. You all weren't really happy with it, but then a weekend later, it was 2%, I believe, of your total traffic had converted. Can you talk a bit more about your newsletter strategy at Bleacher Report? And then to expand on that, I'm curious your thoughts as to why it has taken so long for most other publishers to lean into email, considering it's 2021, and now we see headlines about how newsletters are all the rage. It, it was launch first, then build the product. Uh, and that that can work pretty well because we we validated the market. And even though we were we were mad at Brian at the time or resistant to the idea, uh, the experiment uh, was enough proof that people were willing to sign up and that we could we could convert enough of our audience to make sense. So we 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 launched that pop up. We started uh, signing up subscribers, and we decided that similar to how Bleacher Report was really focused on providing deep coverage across all the teams that rather than have one monolithic newsletter, we were going to create these, these team-based digests uh, and we were going to do it for as many teams as we could. And we started with the most popular teams and we kind of, we set, I can't remember what they were, but we set thresholds of, you know, once we get to maybe a thousand or maybe it was 10,000 subscribers for a team, then we would actually launch the newsletter. Um, And, we we decided to create for the newsletters to be curated so they weren't they were they were they were digests they weren't really editorialized in the way that a, a morning brew or uh more of the the more prominent newsletters of today are they were really it was it was basically a list of links uh but it was curated it was curated by hand we didn't automate any of it uh and it we decided to not just include Bleacher Report stories, but stories from all the sources around the web. Uh, so we we hired some interns. Uh, we we built a tool that would basically allow them to uh, put those newsletters together and and uh, make the compiling of them a little bit more efficient. Uh, and we had them start cr- create curating these newsletters uh, and launching as many of them as we could. Now. Uh, one of those interns, Bennett Spector, is is still today. I think he's the the uh, can't remember his exact, his exact title, but but he's he's like basically head of content strategy for Bleacher. He's he he just continued to to rise through the ranks and and uh, he he made that newsletter program his own. Uh, we really used a lot of the the insights from the newsletter program to make make editorial decisions across all of Bleacher Report. We could look at, all right, here, 
here are the types of stories people are clicking on. Here are the types of framings of headlines. And we tested a lot of things within the newsletter using our most rabid fan base as uh, the test group that we that would then apply across the entire site and, and different distribution channels. And uh, so the strategy really drove a lot of the thinking uh, and it, and it led to, I'd say the biggest breakthrough at Bleacher, uh, which was launching the, the, the Bleacher Report app, which was originally called TeamStream. Uh, and that was basically, we took everything that we did in the newsletter program and we built an app that did the same thing. And it, it was, it was incredibly successful. Uh, I, I think, I think a lot of publishers got away from email uh, because it was, it was perceived as, as not sexy. Uh, and again, in a world where, again, looking back to the, the 2010 to 2015 era where the traffic on Facebook was so incredible. And then people were building these Facebook pages of millions of fans and feeling like that was the direct line to the audience. The idea of all the, the, the blocking and tackling needed to build an email list and maintain it. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of, a lot of effort. And even, even the really big successful email publishers are, they, they have, you know, what, what does Morning Brew have now? A couple million, something like that. And, and, and of course, only a percentage of those people are opening. So it's, 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 a, it's a lot more work and effort for a smaller group. What I think people are coming around to finally over the last few years is that group is incredibly engaged and you have much more reliable access to them. Now, you don't, you don't know for certain that they're going to open the email. You don't know for certain that, that uh Gmail or Yahoo or whoever is going to deliver it in the main inbox, but you have much higher certainty than posting something on Facebook and hoping that someone's going to see it. So I want to close the story about Bleacher Report so we can you know, continue progressing to your second media company. In 2012, you guys sold Bleacher Report for $175 million to TBS. It's very easy to say now, looking back, but you are one of the few digital media companies from that era that actually made money for investors. Many investors and other, whether they're competitors or contemporaries, are still waiting to, uh, t- to get some money back. When everyone else was trying to raise more and more and more money and become billion-dollar brands, you guys opted to sell. Why was that? I think it was Turner was the right buyer. It was the right time. They made a very, uh, very good offer uh, that was was hard to turn down, and I think it, it it also part of it was the fact that we had just started earlier, and we at that point we had been at it uh, for almost seven years, and we were kind of we were ready to sell. Uh, we had raised a good amount of a cash, nothing compared to. What some of the 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 Vice and BuzzFeed and, and Voxes of the world have had uh, or have by now, um, but we we had raised enough uh, that we could have kept going, but it, we felt it was time to sell, and we had been through we had been through a period where media was kind of similar to like it's been the last couple of years. It was in the dumps 
and no one wanted to invest in media. It was incredibly hard for us to raise our first couple rounds of funding. Uh, and we, we had seen what it could be like. And it was just when media was starting to get hot again and VCs were starting to come really come into the category and acquisitions were starting to happen like Huffington Post before us, but we had no idea how long that was going to go on. So I guess you could say we, we made the right call. I, I, I believe we made the right call. We, in the, in the years immediately after when things started to go crazy and there were you know, hundred million plus rounds going into companies and it was looking like there could be an even bigger boom. We did kind of think, Oh, maybe we, we, we were a little too early, but you just never know how things are going to go. And it, it just felt like it was the right buyer. They had a good plan for the company. They made us a great offer. We had really been at it for a long enough time that, that we were ready to, to put a, a, an exclamation point at the end of the story. So nearly a decade later, no regrets? No. You, uh, you sell the company, you take, I'm going to imagine, a little bit of time off. Uh, so I want to fast forward to Inverse. Um, when you launched that, were there things that you were thinking about that had gone wrong at Bleacher Report that you didn't want to make the same mistakes? And at the same time, were there things that went right that you were like, we're definitely doing this again? but in this new niche? Yes and yes. Uh, And a lot of the idea behind Inverse was to take effectively the Bleacher playbook and update it for a few years later and and some of the things that had happened and, and try to cut out some of the things that didn't work. Now, in hindsight, I think some of that was a flawed approach because no, no company is the same. And and I, I don't think you can just take a playbook and say, we're going to run this over again. And I think it, it also led, led me to not, not analyze the situation in a way that was unique to inverse and just try to think, okay, well, what did we do at bleacher? And let's, let's, if it worked there, let's, let's do the same thing here. Um, but Parts of it allowed us to get out the gates much, much more quickly than, than, than Bleacher in other ways. So obviously having experience and being able to draw on that does matter and does does help you. Um, but uh, I mean, some of the things that we, we did that were different is I didn't start with a user-generated content model. And as I mentioned earlier, Bleacher had started UGC and shifted over time to professional content and professional uh, really, really helped us, uh, obviously to raise the level of quality of the content and, and the brand affinity and, and, uh, to, uh, be able to, to work, uh, with bigger advertisers and all sorts of things. So that was, that was a clearly a right decision, uh, in the evolution of Bleacher, uh, inverse started out that way. There was never any idea of having any kind of platform or anything like that. Uh, but a couple of things that, not that I would have done it differently, but I think that that were then different is it's a lot more expensive to have a professional content model than a, a UGC model, obviously. So we were spending more money uh, on editorial and on, on building uh, a professional editorial team earlier in our life cycle uh, than, than Bleacher did. 
And I think one underrated thing is while the UGC model had its pros and cons, it really did build this strong underlying community uh, around it in the early days of Bleacher, um, which is harder to do when when you're running a more traditional editorial model uh, like we had at Inverse. Uh, so that that was something that um, that I, I think was an underrated part of of uh, the UGC model that we ran at Bleacher. And did you know from day one that you needed to have newsletters at Inverse? It was always part of the plan, but I would say it became a much bigger part of the plan about a year in. Uh, it was never, I didn't, I didn't, uh, intend for inverse to be a newsletter first publication. Uh, I, I, I did kind of have it in my, my playbook thinking about the bleacher experience and thinking that we would, or originally I was thinking maybe we would launch something similar to bleacher, like, a multiple newsletters around different topics. Uh, we scrapped that idea pretty early on. I mean, we, we do have multiple newsletters, but we didn't go quite as, as, as wide as Bleacher did. Uh, but when Inverse launched, it was 2015 and it was kind of in the swan song of that social era, uh, right when, when Facebook started to turn the dials and, and, uh, publishers that were previously growing like crazy were starting to lose audience, like the upworthies of the world. Uh, and then Facebook was trying to push everyone towards social video. So we had all the pivots to video. So, in that time, I, I kind of thought, oh, well, we would still try to ride the wave of social for as long as we could uh, and tr- and try to build some audience that way and convert as many of them could as we could over uh, to being inverse fans. Uh, but it, obviously that that social area era then closed pretty quickly. Uh, and and when it did, we, we started to really make a make a push into newsletters. And part of that push was the creation of the rewards program uh, and a, a proprietary rewards incentive program that recently got written up by Digiday. Uh, and I wrote about it and took a somewhat bearish approach to it. Can you talk about the rewards program and how it has helped the business? And then also leaning more into that, you know, how has it helped from a revenue perspective? Yeah. So the rewards program, something we built uh, as we were trying to, to grow engagement on the newsletter and, and thinking about different ways to, to make the newsletter more unique uh, and also kind of born out of the frustration of working with a couple third-party ESPs that we were trying to do some more creative things around tracking analytics and, and tracking user engagement and, and kind of exposing those uh, back to the audience or back to the subscribers uh, and our, our ESPs didn't have the functionality to do that. So we decided to kind of build that ourselves. Uh, and our, our engineering team uh, was very, uh, uh, just did some amazing work uh, using the Amazon SES to, to build uh, kind of a, a homegrown ESP uh, with these kind of features built in. But the, uh, a couple of inspirations for the rewards program uh, one was some of the things that we did early on at Bleacher Report in exposing metrics to our audience. And, and this was when Bleacher was UGC. We would 
it, we would share with the writers you know, all sorts of things around how many people were reading their work and how how they were ranking relative to other writers and things like that. And that kind of stuff was incredibly sticky. So we thought if we could expose uh, some of this stuff to our, our newsletter subscribers that that they would get into it and engage with it. Uh, and then another very basic inspiration was, was Snapchat streaks. Uh, and uh, I, I give credit to uh, our uh, the, the head of our email program, Evan Meredith, who's a, a little bit younger than me and a little bit more of the, the Snapchat generation. And, and he, he kind of uh, suggested that this was something where if we gave people uh, the ability to track how often they open their newsletter and, and, create a streak that it would just be, be a little bit of a, a, a sticky feature that would give that one more incentive for people to make sure they never missed a newsletter. Um, so we built this program where we share how often you open, what your, your percentage opens is what your percentile is of opens relative to other subscribers. Uh, and then based on, and, and you also get streaks. So if you open like 20 emails in a row, you get a, a an email that that you're on fire or something like that, uh, and then uh, based on how many you open in a given month, you're put into different rewards tiers, uh, kind of like a, a a travel rewards program. You know, I'm a big I was a big Starwood rewards or Bonvoy rewards uh, freak for a while. So uh, also we also played off the psychology of that of you want to be in the platinum tier. And if you make sure you open enough emails, you get, you get bumped up there. And if not, you're in the, the, the gold tier. And for each tier, uh, we, we give out a prize every month, uh, that's just drawn at random. But, uh, the idea is the, for the, the higher the tier, the, the better the prize. And it's just a, another, another added bonus of, Oh, if you're, if you're in the platinum tier, you have a, a chance to get a new uh, PlayStation or something like that. Uh, so uh, we built this all out. We launched it, uh, and we've we've seen some really interesting results. Now, part part of this is also paired with we do I would say pretty um, aggressive list scrubbing and things like that. Um, so probably similar to what what a morning brew does in terms of making sure that we we try to hook people and if they're not engaged we don't keep a bunch of dead emails on the list uh, you know we we clean it uh, pretty regularly um, but we found that the rewards program it's a, it's a good just extra incentive to get people to into the email I think the hardest thing to do is to hook someone a new subscriber in the first couple of weeks and make it a regular habit. So it's just it's one more thing to to get them interested and and kind of get them into the 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 gamified aspect of of reading the newsletter. Um, and we've seen as the rewards program has been around that the portion of our or the proportion of our subscriber base that's in the highest tier, the platinum tier, continues to grow. And these are people who open like 90% of the, e- of the emails. And it, it's, it continues to grow as basically the, the, the largest overall group of, in the subscribers. So that's, that's kind of a sign that, that people are, uh, people are, are 
responding to this uh, in in a way that they're 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 really engaged and that we're kind of we're creating this group of of hyper engaged people who are into it. The other more anecdotal uh, aspect of it that uh, is just a sign that that uh, it's it's become a kind of a competitive habit for people is just the number of support emails that we get from people either when we do actually have a tracking issue and we're not able to track people's opens and, and they they see their, their engagement rates go down and, and they're miffed about it. Or more often when there's some kind of user error, when someone's because someone's uh, email client is, is not working correctly or they, they actually do miss emails that they think they opened. Um, you know, we get so many emails from people saying that, you know, they want us to, to look into their stats and make sure that their stats didn't get screwed up. Um, so that's, that's been one of the biggest signs that people just get into it. It's, it's, it's a, a kind of fun way, uh, to make something that would already be a habit in reading an email, uh, a, a little bit more, more engaging and, and, and a little bit more rewarding. Part of the reason I took a bearish approach to this, uh, though the way you describe it is, uh, is certainly compelling, is you know there's opening the email and then there's actually reading the email. And part of part of the way we sell newsletter ads is is you know we calculate how many opens there are, we assign a CPM to it, and then from there put a flat fee. And that's 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 what we tell the advertisers. So obviously you can get a lot of people to open it, but have you seen strong engagement? with the ads or with specific articles within the newsletters. I'm not sure how you might track that um, to show that not only are people opening them, but they are really engaging with them. Yeah. I mean, our fill rates are consistently very high near a hundred percent. Our renewal rates on, on the newsletter are, are very high as well. Um, and we, I, we haven't seen, any kind of since we've introduced it in only the click rates and things like that have only gone up. Uh, but I don't know if that's because of, I couldn't, wouldn't say that's only because of the rewards program. I think it's a number of things. I, the way I look at it is yeah. Once, once someone opens it, it's up to the newsletter, it's up to the, the content, it's up to the experience to get someone into it. If someone doesn't open, there's, they're not going to click anything. So the, the, the rewards program is more about creating a habit. Uh, it's you know, creating something that is, you have, you have a, a little bit of an extra incentive to, to open the email and to, to open it regularly, not something that you just check every once in a while, but, uh, but something that, that you want to make a daily habit. And then once, once that happens, it's up to, everything else you do and putting the newsletter together uh, to make it an engaging experience and make sure that you're going to have great performance for your sponsors. The past 12 months, really, uh, there's been a ton of excitement around paid newsletters. Um, I recall you tweeting that you were thinking about launching a paid newsletter at Inverse. And I don't know many media companies that are looking to launch subscriptions for a single newsletter when they produce so much other content on the site. What's the logic behind this single newsletter subscription? And is it still something you're even doing? 
Uh, so we are doing it. We launched uh, Muskreads Plus, uh, which was or is <clears throat> a, a paid version of our Muskreads newsletter, which covers all things Elon Musk. Uh, and we launched it really as an experiment. Uh, we thought it was a a prime opportunity based on the audience to try out something uh, in uh, in the, the paid subscription world and kind of to learn about it. And we thought it would be a good product. Uh, and and we, we had uh, our, the team that put it together was excited about it and being able to, to, uh, to launch it. So we kind of put it together. We, we put it together almost, almost in secret. It was a little bit skunk works uh, within BDG. Uh, BDG is, maybe notoriously uh, advertising focused uh, also does a good amount in, in affiliate e-com, but is almost completely advertising focused and really has kind of shied away from a lot of the other uh, revenue explorations that some other media companies have done. Uh, not to say that they would have been against it, but we kind of, it was a small project that we just put together and, and threw it together and launched it. Uh, and and had to play some cleanup with our, our legal team and, and getting all the, the T's and C's right once once it was out. But uh, uh, it was fun to do something a little bit more startup-y in, in a bigger company. Um, but yeah, we, we one of the characteristics that we saw is that the, we built this Musgraves newsletter. It was the brainchild of one of our editors uh, and it had had this very loyal following, but very consistent following. Uh, and, uh, I think it had grown to like 70, 80,000 subscribers. So good size, not, not morning brew size, not massive, but good scale. But we noticed that the, it tended to be the same people who opened it, uh, almost every week. Uh, and it was a very consistent base of people who were opening and engaging with it. Uh, and, and just get, and, and there was a lot of interest especially around, uh, kind of the uh, the financial performance of of Tesla and uh, the the financial uh, potential of of some of uh, Elon's other projects. Uh, so we kind of built it with that in mind and and launched it as an experiment. We've talked a little bit about Inverse, uh, and you then or you have now since gone on to sell Inverse uh, to BDG. Uh, bringing you and your co-founder, your Bleach Report co-founder, Brian, back together again. This is the second company you've sold. Why did you decide to sell this time? And what was different than when you sold Bleach Report? So we we sold because we were, quite frankly, uh, we were kind of at the end of the line. Uh, we, we had raised uh, some money, but not, not enough to have a war chest. Uh, and had had built Inverse to be on a fairly good trajectory, but it wasn't it wasn't on runaway uh, growth trajectory. It wasn't it was kind of just on the edge of profitability, uh, but not sustainably there. Um, and in in the the few years after I launched it, the the media space really started to contract. 
uh, we saw a lot of uh, a lot of the larger, uh, more well-funded companies start to stumble. Some of them had to shut down or or have kind of uh, fire sale type acquisitions. And Inverse at the time was much smaller, um, but I, I knew at the time we weren't going to have uh, access to to more funding, and so we we either had to become sustainably profitable or, or we had to sell. And uh, while we were work, working very hard to be sustainably profitable, uh, it, it was just it was it was clear to me that uh, that being part of a bigger company uh, was was going to be the right way to go. Uh, so we, we, uh, we, ended, we, we ran a process. We talked to uh, a number of buyers and I think partly because of the familiarity and, uh, the, the, some of the similar, uh, business model approaches that, that we had taken, uh, given Brian and my background together, uh, BDG was, was clearly the best fit. You've been acquired twice and obviously at BDG, BDG acquires multiple companies, in your experience, you know how can you maximize the success of an acquisition, whereby the whole the the, the the merge of these two brands actually works out for everyone involved? How do you make it work? At least in media and in the experience that I've had, I think in both cases, the brand was being acquired by a larger media organization, but the 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 brand being acquired maintained its own independence just in terms of editorially but but also just the the brand didn't get absorbed into something else and and kind of disappear within a larger whole um and i think that is really critical in that you're not just buying uh a publication, you're buying the the audience that comes with it. If if they actually do have a relationship with an audience, and that that audience has trust and they have expectations, and if you if you mess with it too much, then uh, you're you're destroying a lot of the the, the underlying value. Um, and I, I think that I mean that was a concern. I remember back when uh, we were both selling Bleacher Report and even before we'd had some conversations with ESPN, uh, they never got too serious. Uh, we always were re- really hot on them because I grew up and my other co- co-founders growing up just idolizing ESPN. So we thought, we always thought it would be amazing to get, to get acquired by them, but then they kind of became more of a competitor. And I think it, it kind of seemed clear that if we got bought by ESPN at some point, the Bleacher Report brand would go away and it would get absorbed into ESPN or get rebranded or something. And that just didn't seem quite right in terms of the value we created. And uh, so I I think it worked out for the best. Um, But yeah, I think, I think maintaining that independence and then, but then having the support systems to, help accelerate, uh, and, and supercharge what, what, uh, what can, can, can matter to that brand. Um, you know, with, with Bleacher for us, it was two big things. One is, was, was, uh, promotion on the air on, on Turner networks. 
um, which they did an amazing job with and continue to this day. And even though they told us at the time they were going to do it, I, I kind of didn't really believe them that they, that they would be promoting Bleach Report on air. Cause it just seemed like a, a very aggressive thing to do or very, very valuable screen and airtime real estate to use. So uh, I give them credit for following through with it. And then the other big thing was integration on CNN.com, um, which was a, a big uh, accelerant uh, for, for bleachers traffic and, and uh, just a, a, a great integration that, that just made a lot of sense. Uh, and then with inverse, having all that support of BDG's back office, which inverse is, as a very small company. I mean, I was, I, I was still running all of the finance team, running HR, running PR, running kind of everything myself uh, with a, with a small uh, management team and being able to tap into BDG's sales, BDG's uh, back office, finance, HR, PR support, all of that was huge. And then uh, being able to, to, leverage some of the the product resources they had to to uh redesign and relaunch inverse uh which really hadn't had a fresh coat of paint in a while was was very big um so i mean those are all like the the tactical things that that can make a big difference i mean i think ultimately a big part of it is just selling it into the team when an acquisition is happening that uh, you know, you, you spend a lot of time building a company, talking about vision, uh, you know, talking about mission and where people are going, uh, and getting people to rally behind it. Once you're acquired, it's a big, uh, it's something to celebrate. It's usually something to be excited about, but it's also kind of leads to that questions of, okay, well, what next? If, if our mission before was one thing, is it still that, or does it change now that we're part of a bigger company? What do how how are our lives uh, and and uh, what we show up for every day impacted? So that's that's a very big part of the change, and and you know really it comes down to I think the the leadership of the the uh, the company that's being acquired and and kind of the message and tone that they set, and then uh, how how involved the acquiring company gets in. Uh, in dictating that direction as well. Every time since I've joined Morning Brew, every time I tell someone that I'm the GM of B2B, the first question I get asked is, what's a GM? (laughs) And I think it has something to do with the fact most people think of general managers in the retail sense. Since you're the GM of the culture and innovation group, how do you define the GM role? And then at what point do you think it makes sense for a media company to hire one? Yeah, so... I kind of look at it as I I'm the bridge between the the creative side and the business side uh, of uh, of the culture and innovation group uh, the three sites within it uh, and I, I, I guess other companies may you know everyone may do this differently I I have uh, I have editors uh, reporting into me I have editorial leads reporting into me uh, I I don't dictate editorial direction, but, uh, I, I, I'm a sounding board for them and, and overall manage the, the, the P and L for, for the three sites. Uh, and then, uh, work as a conduit 
between every other part of the business, uh, given that the BDG is is set up uh, in a in in this shared services way where we have uh, sites operating independently, and then these these departments that run across the company, like sales and marketing and and PR, etc. So work across all those other departments to make sure that that uh, uh, the, the, the culture and innovation sites are, are getting the resources and support that they need, that they're, we're coordinating uh, effectively across, uh, uh, aligned with, with company goals uh, and things like that. Uh, so I, I, I look at it as kind of like a dot connector, uh, but not too dissimilar from uh, the role I was playing as, as a CEO before, which is a little bit connector or a little bit, uh, uh, you know, have my sleeves rolled up and just, uh, you know, solving problems as they come up, uh, and then making sure that, that, uh, everyone is, uh, is aware of the bigger goals and, and working, working towards them, uh, as they, they focus on their own individual goals as well. Um, I don't know when it makes sense. I think it, I think it makes sense for a media company when they have a product that's big enough to have its own P and L, whether that's multiple publications or like, uh, you know, at, at, at Bleacher, eventually we, we hired a GM or I think we ended up promoting someone into the GM role for the Bleacher Report app because it was a big enough part of the business that it, it really, it had its own fairly large team at that point. It had its own, own P and L, uh, and, it, it, it really needed to be be managed effectively as as its own business unit. Uh, so I think I think it, uh, it it needs to get to get to that level uh, for it to make sense. You recently wrote a piece called "Media Liquidity Is Back, Baby," and saying that out loud just does not sound as cool as reading it. But effectively, <laughs> say it with some gusto. Back, say baby. It with some gusto. There you go. So effectively, the entire industry now is potentially flush with cash, with SPACs and, and, and I guess really just you know SPACs. Uh, when resources are scarce, the best operators survive. When resources are flush, everyone looks like a hero. And you've now been you know you've been in this business now long enough to go through multiple rounds of fundraising, sell your company, see your contemporaries try to reach ungodly amounts of money from a valuation perspective and fail with liquidity like like it is right now do you have any concerns about a revival of the same mistakes that were made in the early 2010s oh yeah i think that's that's always a, a possibility uh and i i would also caveat what i wrote with the the liquidity that that i was talking about it's it's looking like it's it's going to be here, but it's it hasn't quite happened yet. So uh, we'll we'll have to see how things play out. I guess the only the only spac to truly emerge, unless I've missed some because they seem to be popping up, you know, a couple few dozen a day, uh, is the the Group Nine spac, uh, and they they raise that in a in kind of a unique way where Group Nine itself is still private. Uh, but they raised a, a side-by-side uh, public fund uh, to fund acquisitions, which they haven't 
to my knowledge, made any yet. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting case. Uh, I think we're, we're clearly going to see more just given the pace of SPACs and kind of how it's, uh, it's become uh, the, the option for, uh, you know, medium-ish private companies to, to go public and tap the public markets for liquidity. And it's, it's really what has been missing in media. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of, a lot of ups and downs and a lot of issues, but there's also a lot of the, the bigger media companies, BDG included, but, uh, even some of the ones who've gotten bad PR around stumbles and whatnot have built what clearly to me look like well-established lasting companies. They may not be making money all the time, but some of the flashiest company public companies out there aren't making money all the time. And, um, there there's differences in, in each of those, but I think they, they are good businesses and they just had, there hasn't been a liquidity in game for them, given the, the lack of, big buyers out there and how challenging it is to go public through a traditional IPO. So it looks like SPACs hopefully will change that, but I think they'll also uh, lead to more options for small to mid-level companies uh, to have liquidity and to have exits because the companies that go public via SPAC are going to want to continue to grow and they'll do that through with their new Newly public cat and newly raised cash from the public markets by making acquisitions or by making stock acquisitions to stoke their growth enough to then uh, IPO via SPAC. Uh, and that's that's my prediction. <clears throat> so I'm sure that could lead to some bad deals, uh, and just as in the SPAC market, I'm sure that could lead to some frothy valuations or, or whatnot. Um, but I think if anything, these last few years of really fairly rough times for media when uh, it, it felt like the, the whole industry was constricting and the, the success stories were the real pulled up by their bootstraps uh, uh, type companies like, like Morning Brew uh, like the hustle that I was involved with uh, that were, were kind of at a whole different end of the spectrum. The, the big guys were really struggling and especially the, the mid-level companies were really struggling. I think that, that the tough times of the last few years has created a lot more discipline, uh, focus on fundamentals and kind of hardened a lot of these businesses. And, and if anything, it, the, I hate to say there's silver lining around an industry that was constantly laying people off for a few years. Um, it right-sized some of the businesses. Some of those companies had raised a lot of uh, venture capital and had this mentality of trying to grow incredibly quickly to live up to valuations and probably hired way too many people and uh, were spending too much on headcount without a clear path to how they could build a, a profitable business around it. And, I think the corrections of the last couple of years have uh, have made these bigger digital media companies a lot more stable and and uh, a lot more fundamentally sound to be able to then once they do go go raise cash, continue to be smart about it uh, and make smart acquisitions and look at look at those in ways that uh, will will 
continue to build the bottom line and not just fuel top line growth that, that doesn't impact the business. I want to end with the same two questions I ask every operator that comes on the show. First, looking at your career, what is a mistake you made and what did you learn from it that made you better professionally? I, I would say a, the, I alluded to this earlier, a, a mistake that I made uh, in launching Inverse was focusing too much on social. Uh, and in kind of riding the wave of uh, what was hot at the time, even though deep down I had a feeling that it was it was kind of a house of cards. Um, and I remember having conversations with people at the time and friends who were who were in it, um, and saying, "Oh, what, how long do you think this lasts? This whole Facebook traffic wave? Oh, maybe a year, maybe two. And so you, I could kind of feel it at the time, uh, but I still made the decision. Oh, well, we'll, we'll ride the wave. We'll 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 try to get get in while the getting's good, uh, and we'll kind of, we'll we'll kind of read uh, the tea leaves and, and figure out when it's when it's not looking so good anymore, and and start to kind of move away. And uh, I I, I should have gone with my gut. Uh, and it, it, even though it didn't kill the company at the time, it just, I think I, I had been at, uh, I'd been at a bigger company. Bleacher had been, had been big enough, uh, for the last few years that I forgot what it was like to be really early stage where every resource is precious, uh, and every, every bit of time spent on something that isn't absolutely critical to your mission is, uh, you know, is a huge opportunity cost. Um, so that was, that was something that I think, uh, in looking back, I, 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 I've definitely, you know, as I think about potential future projects or as, as, uh, an, an advisor to other companies, uh, really, uh, has, has led me to, to, apply real critical thinking around trends and waves. And uh, there's always something that's hot that, that people are going to pile into. Uh, And sometimes it really hot, it helps to be the contrarian and to do the things that aren't sexy, that aren't, aren't uh, getting a lot of attention and just, to just focus on what works. Um, And so that that's, that's been, a lesson I try to continually remind myself of because it's 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 always so easy to get distracted by the hot new thing. If you could offer current or prospective media operators some advice to succeed in media, what would that advice be? My advice would be always start with the community and think about what community that you're serving uh, and focus on building building things that build a relationship with that community uh, and. I see it today uh, with, you know, now we, we talked about newsletters went from kind of being ignored to now they're the hot new thing and everyone has a newsletter and everyone's getting into it. And you see the difference between people who launch a newsletter just to have a newsletter uh, and aren't really thinking about the community that they're serving or uh, thinking about a community at all. It's just a way to blast their thoughts out there. 
uh, and the people who are really thinking about serving a specific community and building a strong relationship with them as, as a way to to build their media brand. And I think time and time again, I've been surprised by, by things that have started as very small niche communities that have become that you may have looked at early on and said, Oh, how, how does that ever turn into anything? It's, you know, it's a nice little side thing. And then ends up turning into a very meaningful, very influential media brand because communities have a way of growing and expanding in ways that you don't, don't expect, but they also have a way of propelling things into, into something bigger than you initially thought they could be. Um, so very, very, uh, pro community. Uh, and, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a tool set that you can, you can use no matter what media category you're in. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts. If you want even more, sign up for the newsletter at amediaoperator.com. Each Tuesday, I analyze the latest media news. And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses. Thanks for listening and see you next week.